The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I'm your host, Kim. have a case for you today that I wasn't going to cover because it's gotten quite a bit of coverage but it's a very disturbing story in the way that true crime often is and I have listeners in many other countries other than Canada so though Canadians might know this story many of you listening right now won't and if you do already know it you probably don't mind listening to stories from some different angles. This is the murders of Laura Babcock, Tim Bosma and Wayne Millard. This is another one of those stories where I wonder, where do I even begin? But I'm going to start with Laura Babcock. Laura Babcock was a lovely and bubbly brunette, the daughter of Clayton and Linda, and had a brother named Brent. She attended the University of Toronto and was an aspiring actress. After graduating from university around 2008 or so, she met and started a friends with benefits kind of relationship with a young heir to the Millard Air Fortune. Millard Air was an aviation company based out of Waterloo, Ontario, and that had been founded by Carl Millard in 1963 and at that time run out of Toronto. They flew automotive parts and other cargo. Carl passed away in 1990 and the business was passed down to his son, Wayne. Laura met Wayne's son, Dellen, at a pub and that's how they initially met. This friends with benefits relationship went on for a while, on and off anyways. In 2010, Laura started to date a man named Sean Lerner, 
and they dated for about a year and a half before the breaking up, but remaining still very good friends. Throughout this time, she still kept in contact with Dylan as well, and that friends with benefit relationship was still kind of going on. Between 2011 and April of 2012, Laura started having some mental health issues. She was suffering from some pretty severe anxiety and depression and had been hospitalized, according to Canadian Crimepedia, over about a dozen times during that time period. Uh, It certainly wasn't a very good time in Laura's life. And by that June, she was essentially homeless and working for an escort service. So Sean Lerner took her and her dog in. Uh, where they stayed on his couch until she could get her life back together a bit. In July 2012, Laura suddenly vanished. On July 14th, Sean, along with Clayton, Linda, and Brent, reported her missing to the Toronto police. And of course, once they hear about the escort work and her mental health struggles, they aren't all that interested, which is so frustrating because even if they think she committed suicide or died of an overdose or was murdered by a John, Isn't that all something that you would want to look into and find her? But this meh, she'll turn up attitude really bugs me. Like on what planet is she turning up? Anyways, they didn't look for her. Let's just say that. So when Laura's cell phone bill showed up in Sean's mail later in July, he took a look through it and saw that her last few texts went to Dellen's phone. So he texts Dellen, Quote, I'm not looking to point a finger at anyone, but we're concerned about Laura and it looks like you were the last person to correspond with her. So Sean set up a meeting with Dylan at a Starbucks on July 27th, where Dylan told Sean, Laura is a cokehead. She was looking for coke. I wasn't giving her any. And he claimed that he had no idea where she was or what had happened to her, but adds rather ominously that he should have no reasonable expectation of finding her. So Sean took everything that he'd learned to the police and gave them the phone records and was assured that they were going to look into it. Only they never did. They didn't even put in a missing persons report for her, in fact. So let's just talk a little bit about Dellen Millard. Dellen was born August 30th, 1985 to his dad, Wayne, and mum, Madeline Burns. Madeline had been a flight attendant for Air Canada. And Dylan was their only child and at 14 was the youngest person to fly both a helicopter and a fixed wing plane solo on the same day. The Millards were extraordinarily wealthy and Dylan himself owned a $1.2 million home in Etobicoke and as well as some other properties including a 100 acre farm in Air. Dylan's parents divorced but it sounds like they stayed fairly friendly. On November 29, 2012, so about five months after Laura disappeared, police received a call from Madeline that her husband had passed away. Paramedics arrived and found Wayne in his bed lying on his side with his right arm underneath his head and his left, left arm outstretched. Wayne's death was ruled a suicide, but here's the odd thing about that. For one, the gunshot wound was to his left eye, which is kind of an odd placement for suicide. And more than that, the gun itself was found in a Lululemon bag that was wedged between the dresser and the bed. So he shot himself in the eye and then put the gun in a bag and stuffed it between the bed and dresser before dying. That's rather amazing. Dylan was questioned about his father's suicide on the 30th of November. So let's hear a little bit of that interview. Start from the beginning as to what happened and brought the police into this uh, incident? From the beginning? Well, 
I don't know what time what happened yesterday, but uh, today I got back to the house um, sometime between six and six thirty. Okay, just just today is we're after midnight it's now, so we're it's Friday. So okay. that's why I say yesterday as far as Thursday. All right. All right okay. Yes, I see. Um, so Thursday, uh, sometime between six and six thirty, I'm back to the house. I've been uh, working at our family business in Waterloo. Um, I came in through the side door. That's the door most everybody uses in the house. And um, I opened up the next door, which leads to the cat area of the house. It's the door from the kitchen to the hallway. And then my dog, Petto, was waiting for me there. Um, and I walked down the hallway, and I walked to my room, and um, I picked a sweater out of the closet. It had been a cold day. And then I was on my way back to the kitchen to make a snack, and I noticed that my father seemed to still be asleep in bed, which was odd because it was late in the afternoon. And so I poked my head in and something didn't really seem right um, about the way he was laying. He was laying very stilly. And then I walked into the room and uh, I saw the blood on the pillow. And uh, uh, for a moment I had to leave the room. I actually went back to my room and uh, I got out my phone and I walked back into my dad's room and I called my mother and I told her what I was seeing. I literally said, I'm standing in my dad's room and there's blood all over his pillow and uh, he's dead. And at first she thought I actually meant um, uh, my dog Petto because she kept asking about his dog bed. I said, no, not the dog bed. Bed's pillow. She said, Well, Pedo's not dead. Who's dead? I said, My dad. And she just started screaming on the phone. Why they dropped the matter, I have no idea. It seems completely suspicious to me. Dylan wrote his father's obituary and did actually a very lovely job of it, saying in part of his father, What few words could make comment here? His hope was for a time when cooperation would be the norm and competition was only friendly. He was frugal with himself and generous to others. The only people he feared were racists. He would answer a question with a story. He stepped carefully while advocating carefreeness. He could read and write five languages. He was patient and stubborn. He admired Christ, Gandhi, and Lindbergh. He believed animal welfare was a humanitarian effort. And he was a good man in a careless world. He was my father. Now I'm going to completely switch gears and move to Ancaster, Ontario on May 6, 2013. Ancaster is a suburb of Hamilton, Ontario, and an idyllic and very pretty historical town with more rural properties. It was also home to a lovely young couple and their little two-year-old daughter, Tim Bosma and his wife Charlene. Tim and Charlene were living the Canadian dream, 
Tim was a country music fan and drove a diesel Dodge truck that was a bit of a gas guzzler. So as much as he loved that big black truck with its chrome running boards and all the bells and whistles, it was time to sell and get a bit of a less expensive truck. So he had an ad in the paper and on Sunday, May 6, 2013, two young men answered that ad and arranged to come and look at it. Only they missed their original time they'd set up and instead showed up on foot, which was a bit odd, at around 9 p.m. Charlene asked them why they hadn't driven up and one of the guys said that they'd been dropped off by a friend. Something about these two just didn't sit right with either of them. But in Charlene's mind and being Canadian, she's thinking the worst thing they can do is take the truck and it's poof gone. So when Tim asks her, do you think I should go with them on this test drive? She's like, ah, yeah, you should. So he grabs the keys and heads down the driveway and off they go. Tim told Charlene he'll be back in about an hour. Only an hour goes by. So she starts calling and texting him. No answer. Now she's starting to freak out a little bit. But why would someone kidnap a man for his truck? Like she knows Tim and if they really wanted the truck, they could have just stole it. Tim wasn't going to be a hero about it. It's just a truck. As Canadians, we do tend to have a bit of a different attitude about stuff here. Like there aren't too many of us with guns on our night table drawers. And for the most part, we carry insurance. So it's an inconvenience when we get stolen from, but we generally don't put our lives on the line for stuff. Like I said, a huge inconvenience, but he would be fine going to the police and letting them sort it out. Charlene reported Tim missing and the next morning, and because of the fact that there was an online ad and Tim being a church-going father, and let's face it, a white guy, it's taken very seriously by the Hamilton police immediately. All the police were armed with initially was Charlene's description of the two men, which wasn't a lot and they were both pretty ununique looking for the most part. Both white guys, one in his 20s, the other maybe in his early 30s. Tim's phone was located on May 10th, discarded along the side of the road near Camira Water Solutions in Brantford, Ontario. But the police had already by that time started looking into his phone records and discovered that his last communication was to a phone registered to Lucas Bate. There had been three calls between Bosma and this Lucas guy. One on 5.13 p.m. on the 6th made by Bosma to Lucas, 7.22 p.m. Lucas to Bosma, and then again at 9.04. But when they looked a bit further into the Lucas phone, they saw that it had been used a few days earlier. And they tracked down that person and discovered that his the same Lucas guy and his friend had arranged to look at his Dodge truck. But he found them a bit sketchy, so he backed out of the deal. This guy had a bit more information, remembering that one of the guys had a tattoo that said ambition and was carrying a rather unique tan-colored shoulder bag. And the cell towers the Lucas phone pinged from were traveling from Etobicoke to Ancaster. The address that the phone was registered to turned out to be a high school that didn't have a Lucas Bait as a student. Charlene did a press conference that was a real heartbreaker. She pleaded for someone to bring Tim back to her, stating it was just a truck. Somehow, the tidbit about the tattoo in the bag led the investigators to the Miller Air hangar to question Dylan Millard. What is interesting is that someone must have remembered the bag from when Dylan was interviewed back in November when his dad died because he was wearing the bag in that interview the whole time. Anyways, when Staff Sergeant Paul Hamilton approached Dylan to ask if they could look around, he said, I thought you were going to say that. Now, he didn't give up any information, but he was put under surveillance. 
I will be right back after these brief messages. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Dylan was charged with forcible confinement and theft over $5,000 on May 11th, but they didn't have a body, so there was no murder. Now let's talk a bit more about this Dylan character and the friends that he kept and the mysterious deaths that seemed to follow him around. Dylan grew up to be a rich kid type that saw himself as pretty much untouchable when it came to the law. He spent a lot of money on expensive toys, mostly vehicles and four-wheelers and parties and drugs, and that seemed to be where he liked to spend his dad's money the most. Dylan kept company with a friend of his named Mark Smitch. Who knows how they met because they ran in very different circles. Where Dylan had a lot of money, or at least his family did, Mark did not. Mark also had a lengthy criminal record for things like drug possession, driving impaired, failure to appear. For a living, Mark sold drugs and cigarettes and occasionally did odd jobs from Dylan at the hangar. Their friendship had started sometime around 2006. According to some other people in their circle, Mark worshipped and really looked up to Dylan, but Dylan didn't have the same regard for Mark. But they hung out and Dylan even let Mark and his girlfriend Marlena Menses move into the basement suite of Dylan's parents' house. Dylan, like a bit of a cult leader, would send Mark and other so-called friends of his on late-night missions to steal things like construction equipment, lawnmowers, mostly for the thrill. Dylan didn't need anything that he couldn't have afforded to just buy with his dad's money. So you get the gist. Dylan and Mark are just a couple of douchebags. And Dylan has just had the privilege of being born into money of which to do his douchebaggery stuff with. Oh, and when Wayne Millard, his dad, passed away, Dylan was handed the keys to the company. Now, Dylan had a girlfriend in 2012 named Christina Nudga. Christina came into the picture while Dylan was still having his friends with benefit relationship with Laura Babcock, and the two ladies didn't really care for each other, let's just say. On February 26, 2012, Christina texted Laura saying, Happy birthday. A year ago today was the first time I slept with Dylan. Laura texted back, that's fine. I slept with him a couple of weeks ago. To which Christina said, You are harmful to me. Please don't contact me until you've made some huge leaps of self-discovery. As I've said before, good luck with your life. Then on April 17th, about three months before Laura disappeared, Dylan sent a text to Christina saying, First, I'm going to hurt her. Then I'll make her leave. I will remove her from our lives. Personally, I think he kept sleeping with her after that. But who am I? Anyways, in late June, early July, before Laura disappeared, police discovered that Dylan exchanged about 100 texts with Laura. Laura had been seen going to the Kipling subway 
where Dylan picked her up and drove her back to his place in Etobicoke, and her phone was never used again. In fact, on that evening, around 7.30 p.m., Mark received a text from him saying, I'm on a mission, back in one hour. The very next day, Laura's iPad, which she had gotten from Sean Lerner, was suddenly renamed to Mark's iPad. Mark took a picture with his new iPad of something in a blue tarp and makes a rush order for a new mattress. Before that, Dellen asked his mechanic, Shane Schultman, to order a commercial farm animal incinerator, which sounds like a terrible thing to have for animals, and that incinerator arrived on July 5th. Shane, Dellen, and Mark built a trailer for it so that they could move it to Dellen's farm out in air. Then on July 23rd, Dellen texts Mark's barbecue has run its warm-up, it's ready for meat, and then immediately thereafter does a Google search for what temperature you need for cremation. On August 12th, aspiring and very bad rapper Mark Smitch invites some friends over to a garage at his mum's place to do a little rapidy rap for them, saying, The bitch started off all skin and bone, now the bitch lay on some ashy stone. Last time I saw hers outside the home, and if you go swimming, you can find her phone. Fuck you, Mark. Anyways, a search of Mark's property in Oakville found Laura's red duffel bag with her ID and the iPad, which Sean identified as the one that he'd given to her, now renamed Mark's iPad. And of course, none of this stuff was discovered until they had started looking into Dellen and Mark for Tim Bosma's disappearance. So now I have to veer off again and come back to that investigation. Mark and Dellen's movements after leaving Kim's house weren't too hard to track down. Surveillance tapes pretty much led them right to the Millard hangar where the truck was driven, now tugging along a trailer with some kind of machinery on it. You guessed it, an incinerator. Tiny fragments of Tim's body were discovered in the incinerator, so this was enough to charge Dellen with first-degree murder on May 15, 2013, and Mark was charged on May 23rd. In September 2013, the investigation into Laura Babcock's disappearance was opened, and that is when they discovered all the stuff that I told you about before. On April 10th, Christina Nutka was charged with accessory after the fact to murder, and Dellen was charged with the murder of his father, Wayne Millard. Most of the details of all three murders wouldn't come out until the trial for both Dellen and Mark, who were tried together, happened in February of 2016. I cannot really describe for you the feelings of being in the same room with a murderer and what that's like. It's very surreal. You see the person and you can't help but no notice how normal they look. They breathe in and out just like you and I do, have fingers and toes, and yet you just keep thinking about what they did to another human being. You're angry and sad and just perplexed by the whole thing. And Charlene went to court every day and had to experience that. She had to learn that Arthur Jennings, who worked at Millard Air, had come into the hangar the day after Tim's disappearance was on the news. He could see right away that the truck that had suddenly appeared in the middle of the hangar looked a lot like the one he'd seen on the news, especially the chrome running boards. Quote, I kept looking at that truck and thinking of that poor man and hoping Millard hasn't gotten himself into something. The seats in the truck had been taken out and plates were gone. He took pictures of the truck and the VIN number and called Crime Stoppers. He testified that I was hoping beyond hope it wasn't the truck. But it was. I was in shock. I went outside to my truck and I vomited. I was upset for everybody. For Dylan, for Shane, for my family, for everyone. Shane was actually Arthur's son-in-law who had gotten him the job. Uh, he has no connection to anything illegal. 
I knew at the time that the truck and the hangar sitting that, on that green tarp belonged to Tim Bosma. The man that they had gone on that first test drive with also testified. He was a former Israeli soldier, Igor Temenico. He was the one that noticed the ambition tattoo and described the bag that Dylan was carrying. Igor testified that he kind of felt a bit off, put off by the two. And so he told them that he was familiar with truck suspension and engine from his days in the Israeli army. And they got kind of quiet after that. He said, for my personal opinion, it's very ambitious to have ambition on your arm. Tony DeCano, the owner of a body shop, testified that Dellen had called him about a rush paint job on a black truck that he wanted done on May 8th, just days after Tim's disappearance. He wanted the truck painted red, but called back later and canceled the job. But the most damaging evidence they found was in the form of technology. Laptops, cell phones, servers, guns and drugs seized from the hangar. On Dellen's computers, there were about a dozen iPhone backups stored with pictures and videos. One of the pictures was rolled, was a rolled up blue tarp that was taken right around the time Laura disappeared and at the location of Dellen's farm. Her phone location matched with Dellen's showing they were together and the tarp could have had a body wrapped in it. The incinerator was likely used in Laura's body's disposal as well as it had been purchased just prior to her death. They also found a photo of a gun that was taken with enough of a close-up that they were able to analyze the finger in the photo for prints, which were matched back to Dellen. That handgun was tied to Tim's murder. Christina Nuga, Dellen's girlfriend, her apartment had been searched as well, and she was later charged with accessory after the fact. In her apartment, they found some letters that she had written to Dellen in jail, including one that she received from Dellen saying that he wanted a key crown witness to change his evidence, and she asked her to basically make that happen. Quote, if he knew his words were going to get me a life sentence, he would change them. Show him how he can, and he will change them. And they also found a DVD tape with security footage showing Dellen and Mark in the hangar around 1.30 a.m. on May 7, 2013, which is the time Tim's body was burned. There's no sense in going through every, every piece of evidence tied to Dellen and Mark. I can just say that it was a lot. A guy named Marty McDool testified that, that he had an ad for his motorcycle and trailer that was for sale in Toronto, and then suddenly they were stolen, and he asked Toronto police to check the security footage across the street where they were stolen from, but they never did that. Hamilton police found the motorcycle taken apart and the trailer at the Millard hangar. The trial for the death of Wayne Millard was held separately, and just Dellen was charged with that murder. The employees at the hangar were all aware of tensions building up to November of 2012 between Dellen and his father as well. Art Jennings testified, What I was told is that Dell's father was going to cut him off because Dell was spending too much money and it was not and not taking responsibility for the business, and his father was not going to let him run the business that his father, Dell's grandfather, had started. Dellen had originally told police that he was at Mark's place the night that of his the night of his father's death, but phone records showed he was actually at his dad's place in the early morning hours. They also found that the gun that killed Wayne Millard was purchased by Dellen illegally and had his DNA on it. Linda Babcock, Laura's mum, attended the trial as well to show the judge that Wayne had support. I'm here to see justice done for Wayne Millard. We are there for Wayne Millard just so that the judge can see that his death means something to a lot of people. 
Linda and Clayton continued to get voter registry cards for Laura mailed to their home, even though the court ordered a declaration of her death. And they weren't able to get a copy of the death certificate, something that they discovered in 2018 that she had never officially been declared dead. And that's because the coroner's office was not able to issue her death certificate. Two of the things that must be recorded as part of that process are cause of death and manner of death. And according to the coroner's office, neither was possible without a body. So that forced the Babcock family to go to court and ask the judge to officially declare her dead, even though two men were already serving life sentences for her murder. Linda Babcock told the CBC News that her understanding of the process was that she would have to get a lawyer, go to court again with a declaration of death, and petition the coroner's office to officially register her daughter's death. Mark and Dylan were convicted in 2017. Mark of two counts of first-degree murder and Dylan with three counts. And of course, that all comes with a life sentence, which obviously can only be served once, but parole and eligibility after 75 years, ensuring that he would likely die in prison. They, of course, appealed. Dylan said that he was painted as a villain and was much too smart to have been the mastermind behind such a sloppy and careless murder. I was characterized as the perfect villain, wealthy, privileged, seemingly powerful and advantaged. The public attention was a constant threat to the integrity of the trial. Oh, right, and I forgot to mention, Dylan decided to represent himself at his appeal. You know, because he's so darn smart. He claimed that it was Mark that had killed Tim and that they were just going to look at the truck and had planned to steal it. And the plan to murder Tim was irrational. There was no motive to murder that as a motive to commit homicide for a $24,000 used truck was absurd and defied logic. But apparently a multimillionaire stealing a used truck makes perfect sense. He also said that he had planned a lot of great heists that were all very well planned out. Why then, on the day of the alleged planned murder, would I be so sloppy and careless? Why show my identity to witnesses and not delete content from my devices or turn off my cell phone? This signals that I didn't appreciate or plan for what was to occur. The failure to turn my personal phone off to prevent the creation of my record of my movements on May 6, 2012 undermines the theory that I was the mastermind behind Mr. Bosma's murder. On March 17, 2023, his appeal was denied for a new trial, but the parole and eligibility period was changed to 25 years because in Canada, apparently it's cruel and unusual to not give people hope of having a life outside of prison, even though the family of victims served their life sentence with no hope of ever having their lives back. But stacked parole and eligibility periods are incompatible with human dignity. Linda Babcock said, these judges believe that it is cruel and unusual punishment to give a person a sentence that leaves them no hope for the future. We have no hope. Our family and friends have suffered the loss of our dear daughter, Laura, for over a decade. The grief and heartache are no less now than when she was cruelly taken from us. Both Mark and Dylan continue to reside at the Millhaven Maximum Security Institution. When interviewed for the Fifth Estate, Charlene Bosma, who has now remarried, said that being angry and thinking about if the police had done a better job on Laura's disappearance and Wayne Millard's death, Tim would probably still be alive, doesn't get her anywhere. Tim is still gone and nothing can change that. And that was the murders of Laura Babcock, Wayne Millard, and Tim Bosma. I'm going to be back again next week with another case. As always, thank you so much for listening.
Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.